Hi everyone and welcome to the All Plane Podcast, where we talk with the movers and shakers that are redefining the future of commercial aviation. As usual, before we start, let me remind you once more that all previous episodes of this podcast, as well as many other aviation stories, are available on the All Plane website on allplane.tv. A Today we will explore the technological frontier of commercial aviation. I'm talking about autonomous flight. From a purely technological point of view, this might be much closer than many imagine. From the regulators and operational point of view, that's an entirely different matter. But it is precisely to talk about this topic that today here on the podcast we have Mark Piet, the founder and CEO of X-Wing. X-Wing is a Californian startup that is developing a system to get aircraft to fly autonomously and without human intervention from gate to gate. This is not an hypothetical scenario. X-Wing has already conducted a real successful test with a modified Cessna Caravan aircraft. In fact, to be more accurate, there was always a remote link with a ground operator, since this was one of the regulator's requirements, but the technology was successfully demonstrated. So, what is then next in the field of autonomous flight? How does Mark envisage this technology to evolve going forward? And very importantly, how well does it scale? In short, how close are we from seeing fully autonomous aircraft flying around? I think it's best if we get the answers to all these questions directly from Mark. Hello, Mark. How are you? Hi, Miguel. It's a, it's a pleasure to be talking with you. Yeah, likewise. I had the chance to learn a little bit about the company you founded and that you are leading, X-Wing. And I was completely amazed by you what you guys are doing. So I thought it was it was time to, to get you in the podcast and have you share some insights with our audience. Because I think what you guys are doing is really, really disruptive, uh, transformative for the, for the industry. And we're going to talk about it now in detail. But before we get into the technology side of things, could you please tell us a bit more about yourself? Let me just start by just a short sentence introducing you. You are the founder and CEO of X-Wing, which is a startup based in California that is working in the very exciting domain of autonomous flight. And now I pass the baton on to you so that you can tell us a bit more about yourself and how did you start this project? Sure. Um... Well, it's a pleasure to be here. So <clears throat> I guess I started the company back in uh, 2016. By means of background, I, I have an engineering background. I, um, I'm originally from Belgium, came to the US right after my undergrad and uh, started working here, mostly as a um, doing software work initially. So I um, became a software engineer, worked in different roles over the years, got my green card in 08. I was just fascinated by the um, uh, the startup ecosystem and wanted to start companies. And that was part of the reason why I came out here as well. I decided to spend a couple of years at MIT and start my first company out of MIT, out of MIT back in 2010 or late, late 2010. Still on the software side, we're doing a lot of machine learning and structuring data at scale using ML-based classifiers. I, um, we, you know, we raised a few rounds, uh, raised a few rounds with that company and then um, sold that company in late 2013. And I was an executive at the acquiring firm. I that's when I started getting into aviation. I, um, you know, I, I'd always been fascinated by aviation. I wanted to, um, uh, you know, spend some time in that in the space. Started taking flying lessons out of Palo Alto Airport, and uh, and just thinking about the space in general. And I was just fascinated by how uh, the slow pace of progress or the perceived slow pace of progress. I mean, coming from the software industry. That I saw in the, especially in the general general aviation market, I like to say, you know, it's quite striking. If you go to any small airport out there, you take a photo, 
uh, now, uh, you could probably take a similar photo in the, in the 70s and, and those photos would be pretty similar. Uh, the aircraft's technology has evolved at a pretty slow pace on, in this segment of the market, but it's now accelerating. There's a few technologies that are coming online now. Uh, you know, the writing was on the wall. What we do in the form of autonomy, and the other one is really in the form of uh, novel propulsion systems. And it got me really excited uh, at uh, the idea of combining my deep interest in robotics with that of uh, aviation to solve a large regional mobility problems. Mm -hmm. So one thing to another, I quit my job then and started this company back in early 2016. Cool. So X-Wing. Um, X-Wing, what you guys are doing is basically have, uh, so far you've been testing this system on a, on a Cessna caravan which is mm -hmm. an example of an airframe that has been around for like, I don't know how many decades, but it's, it's like a, <laughs> a, mm -hmm. a, a legacy airframe, but you're fitting it with a, with a system that allows these aircraft to, to fly autonomously from point A to point B. And actually you conducted, I think, a test in 2021. Tell us a bit more about this technology. How you guys do it? Uh, what, what is capable of doing? What is not capable of doing? And also I think there are things that it's capable of doing, but cannot really, really do because of uh, the regulations in place are not, uh, let's say, don't, don't contemplate this, this scenario of uh, um, an aircraft uh, flying yeah. on its own. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, if you back up a little bit, right, I mean, people have been flying unmanned or actually piloted aircraft to some extent uh, on the DoD for, uh, for quite a while, right? And... Uh, and here, what we're looking to do really is uh, be able to bring this to the commercial market, be able to fly these vehicles without the need for pilot on board, and uh, and and have these vehicles integrate seamlessly uh, in the airspace, integrate seamlessly at airport facilities. And uh, we, you know, we picked a Cessna Grand Caravan there as a platform of choice for the first certification program that we're going through, because it's just a workhorse in the industry, especially in the express cargo market. You know, um, it's the market that provides next-day delivery um, to all the small localities out there. FedEx, UPS, and DHL use this platform extensively. Yeah, because actually, let me make a parenthesis here. You're a startup developing new technology, but X-Wing also has a, let's say, a more quote-unquote conventional business, which is uh, you operate a fleet of uh, Cessna caravans that is uh, covering cargo for uh, UPS, I think. UPS. Yeah. Yes, and, yeah. and those two things uh, go hand-in-hand. And, you know, uh, in order to be able to introduce those vehicles commercially, to certify, uh, certifying the technology on board the aircraft like NSTC is not sufficient. You also need to get the operational approvals to deploy these vehicles in an operational setting. And that's where a lot of the challenges are because the, the operations do change. Uh, and so you need to both work on the STC program, which typically falls in the Part 23, but, but also on the Part 20, 135 side of the you know, your air carrier certificate and all the changes that need to happen on that air carrier certificate to be able to deploy what is then um, certified aircraft or type, you know, or an aircraft with an STC or type certificate onto those operations commercially. So that's, that's one of the reasons. Uh, there's also other benefits for us to be able to operate. I'm a big fan of learning by doing. And, uh, and unless, unless you're out there, you're not really, you know, operating and understanding all the edge cases. Uh, you might be missing key, uh, some of these key edge cases. So we we get some of these operational insights that feeds into uh, the engineering roadmap. Make sure that we're handling all those edge cases part of that certification program. So going back to your initial question, you're asking, you know, uh, what's what the yeah. aircraft is capable of doing, uh, what is not capable, what it's not capable of doing. Yeah. From a certification standpoint. 
we certify, um, we're working through a certification program um, to enable uh, full gate-to-gate -gate mission without the need for operator involvement. So the aircraft needs to be able to, once you engage the system at the gate or you know outside your hang, whatever uh, your hangar, Mm -hmm. The aircraft needs to be able to go taxi, take off, navigate the airspace, land at its destination airport, and taxi all the way to its final destination without the need for human involvement. Okay, and, and how do you do that? How, how does it know because, the environment? Right, but the and the you know the the reason why it's important that uh, we're working on certifying this without the need for human involvement is because uh, we don't want the data links to that aircraft to be safety critical. Mm -hmm. And so we need the aircraft to be able to operate safely in airport grounds or, or, or in the airspace, even if it loses communication uh, to the ground. And that's why, you know, and that's the approach we've taken. Now, you know, um, there are, you, you know, the aircraft, there's, an inf there's infrastructure out there that we need to comply with and rules of the road that we need to comply with. And air traffic control is uh, is one of those organizations that, uh, typically regulates the um, uh, the flow of traffic in the air there, uh, or with with ground control, and you need to integrate seamlessly with that infrastructure, right? And uh, and that organization. We do this uh, right now. It's using um, you know voice or a VHF thing, so that's how this that communication takes place. That's a traditional way of doing it. With uh, it's a traditional way of doing it. Yeah. There's a few uh, protocols that are being worked on for di for digital links uh, mm -hmm. to the aircraft in the form of CPDLC, for example. Uh, there's also some effort on the UTM side and land traffic management, um, um, you know, that looks to generalize to the, to to the rest of the airspace. But until some of those are rolled out, we do need to integrate seamlessly with an existing air traffic control infrastructure, mm -hmm. and we do that by having a supervisor on the ground, uh, a human on the ground. That interfaces with our traffic control, receives the appropriate clearances, um, potential instructions. You know, if you need to get vectored in, in a certain way into a busy airport, and that that supervisor on the ground will will translate those instructions from ATC into high level commands that get sent to the aircraft through that through through a data link there for the aircraft to comply. This uh, person could take control of the aircraft at any point if there is a need to do so. Yeah. Well, yes and no. The person has limited uh, capabilities. That person on the ground can uh, change, uh, make adjustments to the flight plan. So change waypoints, for example. Uh, you know, decide to send instructions for the aircraft to redirect to a different airport. So modifications to the existing aircraft flight plan. Uh, but there's no remote, you know, a stick control, right? It's not like there's an interceptor on the ground where the, the person on the ground like has a stick and can start manually flying the aircraft. Okay. That is, we do not design it um, uh, that way. Um, you know, in fact, uh, if you think about it, I mean, I was talking to, um, to a three-star general a few weeks ago, and he was telling me how some of these predator drones, the MQ-9s, for example, are remotely flown, and uh, and they lose quite a bit of them um, due to operator errors there, um, you know, especially around the terminal area when you're coming in for landing. Uh, you know, okay. whenever you have a, a computer can can do this more so, safely than a human, uh, than a remote operator. I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but is there a combination of preloaded data? Yes. But also, also, I guess, there must be some type of feeding mechanism that, based on some type of sensors that are constantly providing feedback about what's around, and some logic built in that tells him, tells well him, it uh, tells it tells the aircraft what to do if 
A happens, what to do if B happens, and Correct. in an, an iterative way, somehow. Correct. I mean, if you think, if you unpack this a little bit, right, and this is similar to, I mean, in effect, you're talking about robotics here, right? So in the field of robotics, you have what's called uh, perception, planning, and control. Perception is really uh, the ability for the vehicle to understand or, you know, uh, the vehicle to understand where it is in space accurately and where obstacles are around it uh, in space. And that's usually done through sensing. And we have different sensing modalities here, additional to traditional aviation sensors. We also have uh, radars, cameras, LIDARs to provide um, both a, um, and, and it, you know, and, and then there's a, you know, in addition to a DSB or, or transponder, uh, uh, transponder uh, signals, in order for the aircraft to be able to determine what is around it, you know, and um, and how to track what those various obstacles, um, uh, with the direction of those various obstacles, right? So, so that's the sensing piece. There's also sensors to ensure that uh, the aircraft knows precisely where it is in space, right? Within that environment, you know, typically that's done using a, a GPS and near inertial uh, system there. But sometimes you need to augment that to increase integrity level of that uh, of that position. If you lose a few satellites, for example, you can get um, a cross rack error on landing that could be north of 10 meters. Well, that can become hazardous uh, with um, uh, with GPS. So the integrity level of GPS is typically not sufficient to go all the way to the ground. That's why some of the airports out there have ILS systems, which are augments the integrity of that position exists signal. So that's the perception piece. It's a lot of sensors and sensor fusion work to solve the problem of where am I and where are obstacles around me. All of this data feeds into the planning uh, side. So we have what's called a mission management system that's on board the aircraft that gets that information and uh, combines this with pre-existing data. Uh, map of terrain, for example, right? So different types of maps, terrain maps, uh, airport maps, potential uh, potential landing area in case of uh, you know in the case of contingencies, right? Outside of uh, outside of airport maps, and uh, and it combines this with uh, airspace uh, airspace information and airspace constraints and restrictions, as well as uh, uh, weather data, right? Mm -hmm. In order to to be able to make decisions. It can make decisions on its own. Uh, it can also receive input from the ground, from that ground supervisor in terms of adjustment to a flight plan. But in the end, that you know, that mission management system needs to be able to determine uh, where the aircraft is going to go, right? Yeah. Figure out what the directory is uh, based on all of that data, fusing all of that data. Uh, if it gets input from the ground, it also needs to verify that input is safe, right? So, um, you know, if... If, if it's getting an instruction to um, to address its flight plan that would lead into crashing to terrain or that lead into crashing to a populated area, obviously there needs to be some validation as well there to ensure um, that the aircraft is not putting people in jeopardy there. Uh, and so with that data, with that planning data, it feeds that into you know what people typically view as autopilots. I mean, in this case, so that's the control piece. Another pilot here is a is a more sophisticated autopilot because it, it cannot it doesn't just handle waypoint navigation, but it also handles the various, um, you know, um, takeoff procedures, landing procedures, uh, taxiing on the ground. So it's a much augmented autopilot, um, you know, we call this our auto-flight system internally here. And, and so in order to close that loop and be able to actuate the control surfaces, control the engines, the brakes, and, uh, and, and be able to steer the aircraft along the plan directory there.
That's that's what I don't, I don't you know at a high level the system consists on on board the aircraft. Now there's also associated elements um, from like ground supervisor or, uh, or ground operator. But and how mature is all this system? What could realistically do now? Could it just be applied to any sort of aircraft and and work, or there's still some way yeah. until it can scale up uh, to larger aircraft than a Cessna uh, Caravan? So... Yeah, so we've been maturing the system for the past few years here, right? So we were, uh, I believe, the first company to demonstrate full gate-to-gate missions back two years ago, now two and a half years ago now, where you engage your system and the, and the, the aircraft would run full missions on an experimental aircraft. We've been uh, working on a certification stack uh, since then and have, you know, filed our, uh, our PSCP earlier this year in March. I believe we became the first company in the industry to enter into a formal certification program with the FAA for a standard category unmanned aircraft. And if, the- sorry, if, if you, uh, if this certification is approved, what does it allow you to do? So that's to certify uh, the technology in the session. So what's called an STC, uh, the technology goes on board that aircraft to be able to fly that aircraft fully unmanned, right? So uh, without the need for a pilot on board. Okay. So it's the installation of all of those systems uh, so that the aircraft has all that capability to run a full mission without the need for uh, human input and also uh, and to be flown unmanned commercially. Even. But that would be specific to the Cessna Caravan? or That's specific to the Cessna Caravan in this case, but okay. there is a lot of commonality across aircraft out there. Okay. So if you think about like some of the things that might be aircraft specific here, while the flight control loss, for example, uh, some of the mechanical integration of some of the you know, uh, servos and actuators uh, are aircraft specific. It depends on the configuration of the aircraft. The sensor placement can also be aircraft specific. Um, you know, you might have a, a twin engine uh, aircraft, in which case you might put the sensors on the nose. Uh, if you, in this case, it's a Cessna Grand Caravan, so we're putting um, a number of sensors on the wings, so wing-mounted sensors. So some of those things are aircraft specific, but the bulk, the bulk of the technology we're developing is uh, with the aircraft agnostic. So you know, all the infrastructure due to uh, mission management, all the algorithms that that fuses various types of sensors and the logic to um, to do that state estimation, to do um, uh, to solve that perception problem, the um, the elements on the ground, the communication links, and the uh, the elements on the ground for that uh, remote supervisor. Um, you know, all of those are uh, mostly aircraft agnostic. So, you know, at a very high level, and it really depends on the aircraft configuration there, but we, we estimate about 80% of the technology we've been developing here on the caravan is aircraft agnostic, and that remaining 20% is specific to the caravan there. Mm-hmm. And as a business, what is your way to market? Because uh, at the moment, all of this is pretty experimental. Of course, you have the business, like the conventional business of the cargo air cargo business, but... If it gets to the point where you are market ready, how you envisage this working? Is it going to be the retrofit market for people that might have aircraft like Cessna Caravans, for example, and want to make them autonomous? Yes. Or, or you plan to work, for example, with OEMs to integrate that as a, as a line feed option for, for an operator that might want to have autonomous aircraft fresh from the factory and, and then change completely the way they operate their fleets? So both. The, the part of the reason why you picked a caravan is that there's a pretty extensive uh, fleet of caravans that are flying t- to date, right? Somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 uh, that are deployed worldwide. And, uh, and those aircraft still have a long life ahead of them. So, you know, Textron produces, I believe, last time I looked, around 60 a year. 
So um, going the retrofit route on this initial program there is useful. We don't need to wait or combine our technology on a, on a new vehicle and work jointly with an OEM to, to be able to certify this technology and get it deployed out there. Um, the retrofit market makes a ton of sense and it's um, it's going to continue to make a good amount of sense because there's, there's you know, these aircraft have long life, you know, uh, long lifetimes ahead of, you know, they've got a long mm-hmm. lifetime in general. Uh, I mean, I think they're still playing B-50. I think the B-52s in the Air Force, for example, are, you know, uh, are expected to have a hundred year lifespan there. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, pretty amazing. Um, so this is not not uncommon in aviation, and uh, and so retrofitting and upgrade upgrade of existing uh, fleets of aircraft is very common. Now, of course, where it gets us excited is to be able to uh, integrate this on new vehicles uh, that are being developed right now. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of work and innovation going on in the industry right now. Indeed, yeah. Uh, with novel powertrains, uh, whether it be hyperelectric, uh, battery electric, hydrogen fuel cell electric powertrain aircraft. And that's going to be, you know, that's yeah. going to be the future. So, yeah. and clean sheet designs as well, because we, uh, yeah, absolutely. And these these yeah. are mostly clean sheet designs, uh, to a large extent, not all of them, um, but a lot of those are clean sheet designs because these changes, changes to the powertrain have significant implication from a design standpoint. Mm-hmm. And making modifications to an existing aircraft is challenging. You can't just convert an existing aircraft and make it a battery electric aircraft. There's, a, you're going to have structural issues. You're going to have, I mean, you basically have to design your aircraft around the powertrain to a large extent. And you've probably seen that on the hydrogen fuel cell side as well. So we uh, we are in discussion with um, a number of OEMs there, and uh, we are looking to partner with them to integrate this technology on new vehicles so that they can be, uh, uh, you know, go through line fits and come off the assembly lines with um, with this type with this type of capability. Is there a size limit? So could it potentially work with a an airliner, a Boeing seven three seven type aircraft? The fundamentals are the same, but there are regulatory differences and safety yeah, levels. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. you know, right now, Cessna Grand Caravan falls under Part twenty three. Um, um, you know, it's a Part twenty three aircraft. Uh, that's aircraft below nineteen thousand pounds, nineteen seaters. And uh, they fall under a certain regulatory regime there. Larger aircraft than that fall under Part 25. They, um, you know, the safety levels are different. And uh, mostly because, you know, they typically carry a lot more passengers. And so you typically go an order of magnitude uh, higher from a uh, from safety level perspective. And, uh, and yes, the technology is going to make it to that market eventually. But our, our focus right now has been on the Part 23 side. Uh, so we're probably doing 19,000 pounds and 19 seaters there. Mm-hmm. And a few days ago, you also announced a project uh, with the Defense Department, I think. So that has... Air Force. Yeah, sorry, with Air Force, yeah. Um, so it has also potential military applications. What can you tell us about that that is not classified? <laughs> yes, I mean, look... Um... This technology has very broad uses, right? I mean, in fact, it's applicable for the entire aviation industry across uh, all the various use cases there. And it's quite transformative for a number of reasons that um, we, we can talk about. But, you know, so this is also obviously applicable for defense. There's uh, increasing levels of interest, and that's been the case for the, the past few years here, in autonomy uh, for defense applications. Um, there's interest in dual use technology, so technologies are developed for the commercial market that are brought to the defense market. Uh, and uh, and there's also interest for you know, what's called contested logistics, mm-hmm. being able to provide logistic services and logistics-based services 
in contested environments uh, without necessarily putting uh, people in harm's way, in this case, pilots uh, in harm's way. Yeah. And so these are these are the obvious, but you know, it's interesting because autonomy also brings you additional capability that you didn't necessarily have before. Um, a computer can fly an aircraft um, under different conditions than a pilot, and fly those vehicles around the clock 24-7. There's no pilot risk time restrictions uh, with a computer. There's um, you know, it can also do things that a pilot might not be able to do uh, safely and reliably over a certain amount of times. And so, you know, there's a lot of benefits um, to to bring autonomy to to different vehicles on on that side of the that side of the fence as well. I guess that requires a lot of capital. Are you a, a VC funded company? I know because of the this press release you you sent out a few days ago that I think there's some government funding because of these military projects. But I guess you you guys have uh, private investors as well. What can you tell us yes. about your story as a startup? Yes, it is capital intensive to develop this type of technology. There's a lot of engineering work across all sorts of disciplines. There's a um, time frame. The time frames that are involved to not just design the systems, but also to demonstrate the safety of the systems. And there's, you know, that 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 brings a lot of complexity there. And so, you know, yes, we uh, some of these systems are capital intensive. Uh, we are VC funded and have been uh, since the beginning. We've also brought in additional sources of capital as well um, uh, through various customers out there. And there's a, um, you know, uh, we expect to be working, uh, um, you know, if you think about like the next the next couple of years, we're still about uh, two and a half to three years to certification, roughly on the commercial front. But um, uh, but there's a lot of interest on the defense side uh, that's, uh, you know, that we've been working on, uh, including with customers on that front as well to uh, for even early, for earlier deployments. How much of a, a software business you are, or how much of, and how much of a hardware business? Because I, I imagine it's primarily no. it's primarily software, but there must be also some, like let's say, some tangible elements there that need to be fitted in the aircraft and need to be made sure. to, to work together. Sure. So there's obviously hardware components involved with making more efficient aircraft so they can so you know in the form of sensors and in the form of servos and you know, flight control computers, our management systems. There's all sorts of things that come into play. We we work with vendors. A lot of those and work with um, either either certified hardware components or certifiable hardware components on that certification system to a large extent. We do a lot of the integration and all the software work on top of it. Mm-hmm. So we've been, uh, uh, you know, and that's a, uh, and obviously that comes with a ton of systems engineering work to be able to demonstrate the level of safety that, uh, you know, that meets the criteria, you know, that meets the, the regulators' needs. Uh, to be able to deploy this technology safely on there. So, yes, we're primarily a software company, but with uh, components of hardware that we do integrate, and um, and uh, and then you know, in addition to all the certification work that we do. Mm-hmm. And what are the next milestones you are aiming for? Obviously, you mentioned certification two, three <laughs> years into the future, but are there mm-hmm. any other firsts that we can expect in the meantime? Things that might be like, let's say, he- headline making. Like um, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I guess on the on the first, you know, um, beyond the uh, the capability we demonstrated a couple of years ago, and and that uh, that filing of that PSCP, that project specific certification plan, which was an extensive document uh, to kick off the certification program that we did back in uh, in March uh, of this year. Uh, these were, uh, I guess, big milestones there and first for the industry. We're um, we're working uh, on our G1, so um, 
certification basis for this uh, for this vehicle there. And then following that, there'll be a, a G2 uh, um, later the next year. What are those? Are there different different steps in the certification process? Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, there are different steps in the certification process, right? So, you know, at a very high level, right? You agree when you're going through a certification program here, you agree with DFA as to what basis you're certifying your technology under. So, you know, DFA has all sorts of rules and regulations to ensure safety here, right? Of, uh, of technology, of, you know, from an aircraft design and, uh, and integration of technology on aircraft. And you're going through those rules and decide, okay, well, these are the these are the various rules that um, uh, that we're meeting, and that's the certification basis. This is the, this is what we're certifying the system against, right? These are the rules and regulations that are applicable for this, and we work with the FAA to come to an agreement as to what that basis is, right? Based on the rules on the books, we're not looking to do rulemaking here, or uh, because that's a lengthy process, and so we work entirely within the constraints of the existing rules and regulation uh, that are on the books, uh, whether it be on the Part 23. Part 91, Part 135, or the, some of the exemption, exemption processes that are out there as well. Uh, so that's the certification basis. After that, you have to really show about how, you, how you've been complying to those rules. So, um, you know, show me how you're meeting uh, those regulations. And that's the detailed engineering work uh, that goes into it. So that's typically folded in a, a G2, what's called a G2, uh, the means of compliance for that certification basis. And uh, at which point, you know, your system is uh, mostly fixed. The design is mostly uh, fixed at that stage. Yeah. And then there's going to be some practice campaigns following that to demonstrate that hey, you're actually meeting the, the performance uh, that you're stating um, within your within your applications there. Mm -hmm. So that's at a very high level, right? Uh, so you have to go through these various stages in order to go through a full certification. Uh, you obtain then an STC. You also need to get, in some cases, a production certificate. Uh, so the STC allows you to install that technology on board the aircraft. Production certificate allows you to show that, hey, whenever you're producing additional systems to install in those aircraft, well, it's it's going to uh, meet uh, those building regulations as well and it's going to comply. And then, uh, and then you need what's called the operator certificate there to be updated so that you can start introducing this technology on the in a commercial setting. In this case, uh, on a Part 135 uh, air carrier certificate. Mm -hmm. And you're performing flight tests in the meantime as part of this process? There's extensive flight. I mean, we've been doing flight tests uh, for years here. Uh, in California or in Nevada? Hundreds of missions, mostly in Northern California from an experimental uh -huh. standpoint. The, um, uh, you know, we've operated at six different types of airports, both controlled and controlled airports. We've done hundreds of missions. You know, I don't know, we're probably north of 600 uh, our lands at this stage as well. Uh, the and you know these flight test campaigns um, are help us really refine the technology, ensure that we're hitting those various types of edge cases. You know we we work in conjunction with the FAA and NASA as well, and we've done that over the years on some flight test campaigns as well to ensure that um, you know not only the tech and the, you know the technology on board the aircraft uh, is going to be the safety levels that are required, but also how that aircraft integrates. In, a, uh, in the airspace, and that's really a critical piece here, um, uh, safe, that it's going to be integrated in the airspace safely, uh, not only with, uh, and that it's the interaction with other traffic is going to be appropriate, but also the interaction with our traffic control or ground control, depending if you're uh, uh, flying or if you're uh, taxiing on an airport facility. Mm -hmm. So all of those uh, are supported by extensive flight test campaigns, and that informs uh, the ultimate design and, uh, and the, res the resulting product. 
Um, for people that wish to learn more about what you guys are doing, what would be the sources, websites, uh, social media channels to check? Yeah, come and follow us on LinkedIn or on uh, or on social media in general. We have uh, you know we post updates quite uh, quite often there. The uh, you know and sometimes that's also accompanied by blog posts, postings in general. Uh, there's always a website, but uh, LinkedIn is going to have more current data uh, that gets put on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, yeah, and then, you know, obviously come and ask us questions whenever we're at industry events as well. We uh, we attend quite a few of those across the industry. So Great. I'll I'll be posting links and I think some videos as well that you have uh, on, online as well. Channel. We also have a YouTube yep. channel that has, a, that has a number of videos out there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for this very detailed explanation of what you guys are doing. I'm sure that we are going to hear a lot more about you guys in the in the coming future. Oh, Miguel, it was a, it was a, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye. Right. Before you go, and if you like this podcast, a quick reminder that it would be absolutely great if you could please give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you are using, or recommend it to a friend or whomever might be interested. Thank you very much and see you soon.